What's up everyone, I'm Isaac Jackson and you are listening to Films Don't Shoot Themselves, a fortnightly podcast where I discuss all things filmmaking. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about shooting two kilometers below sea level, production issues that you can avoid easily, and why being adaptable is key to producing documentaries. All that and more is coming up on this week's show, so let's get started. In the pilot episode, we were talking all about pre-producing documentaries and how it's very, very important that you spend as much time as you possibly can developing that story, developing your pre-production strategy, so when you go into your production stage, it is as smooth sailing as possible. What we're going to be talking about in this episode is the production phase. As I mentioned in the pilot episode, I have been working with a mine based in North Yorkshire to produce a series of films called Meet Our People, which are all about the people that work for them. And it's telling their story and how they work within the company. Over the last few weeks, I have been busy filming this project, getting it all done. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how that went, some of the challenges I faced and how they were overcome. So originally we planned to shoot these documentaries over five days and the first day was going to be getting some general shots, getting some drone shots of the site. The second day was going to be following one of the interview subjects as was the third and the fourth. And then the fifth day was going to be some catch up shots, um, getting some of the personal life from two of the interview subjects. And unfortunately, things ended up changing and we had to do a sixth day because we had a slight little issue with the microphone that we were using. The microphone in question is the Sennheiser G3 Lavalier. It's a radio microphone. And the issue we had was we filmed one interview and literally turned the camera around to film in another direction. And somehow in between filming those two different interviews, the mute switch got turned on and the audio was lost for the whole of that interview, plus other interviews that we did later on in the day. Now, this is a really bad design of, of this microphone because it does look like it's a power switch. And what probably happened is as the interview subject passed it across to the other interview subject, they flicked the switch thinking that it was just turning the power off. But unfortunately, that muted the audio and stupidly, I did not check throughout the entire day whether or not that audio was being recorded, which I should have done. That was a big mistake and unfortunately we ended up having to shoot um, most of that day's content on another day. Um, so we ended up doing six days of production. Now something that I am doing to counteract the problem of this switch is I'm now putting a little bit of electrician's tape over that switch whenever I go out and shoot so that no one will touch it and no one will mute the microphone. It's a bit of a silly feature. Um, your power switch and all of these other buttons are hidden beneath the battery compartment. So it's, it's difficult to accidentally um, knock off. The mute switch should really have been as well. And unfortunately, the camera I have, I can't monitor my audio through it. There's no headphone jack, so I can't monitor that audio. So I ended up getting home and listening through all of the interviews from the day and starting to log all of the footage just to find out that, ah, uh, yeah, this hasn't worked. I haven't got all of this audio, which was an absolute pain in the ass, to be honest. I, I was really upset about that. Um, but at least we managed to get the interview done again on another day and everything is perfect now. We've got all of the footage and that's good to go. 
So my advice would be if you have one of these microphones, the Sennheiser G3 Lav, make sure you cover up the mute switch if you're filming documentaries because one of your interview subjects may accidentally flick it off and you could lose all of your audio. And also double check the audio every single time. So what I've been doing now is when I've clicked record, I will record for a few seconds, ask them a, uh, a quick question, like what did you have for breakfast? Record their answer, stop recording, play that back and listen through the, the camera's inbuilt speaker to see if that audio has been captured. If it has, then we're good to go. Another issue that arose from this shoot was one of the interview subjects, unfortunately, uh, wasn't able to do it anymore. And that, that was quite a shame. We spent an entire day filming with her. Uh, we went underground and filmed all of that. And unfortunately, she's no longer able to be a part of it. So that was kind of annoying. Um, it could have been avoided, but unfortunately it wasn't. And we spent an entire day shooting. Um, the fortunate thing was some of that footage was salvageable and was usable. So it wasn't a complete waste of a day and we did manage to get um, all of that extra shots to use within the other documentaries, but we could have used that time more wisely. So it, it was quite annoying that that happened. But unfortunately, these things happen. Sometimes things change and you need to be adaptable. And that's something you really need to be able to do when you're making documentaries is to be able to adapt to the situation as it arises whether that's um, major changes in what's going on for the day and your plans for the day and being able to adapt and adjust the script you've planned in pre-production to fit those changes or be able to think of things up on the fly that can keep you in a similar sort of direction that you've planned for your documentary. Being able to do any of this kind of thing is a very, very important skill to have as a documentary filmmaker. You need to be adaptable and you need to be able to change with the tides. Being able to do this is not just good for you because you're able to get your story still told and done, but it's also really good because you could potentially come across something that you may not have thought about during pre-production and could dramatically change the story. It could change what you're telling with your story. It could change the way you're going to tell your story. And who knows, something like that happening could end up changing your film for the better and allow you to end up with a much better end product than you originally anticipated having. So as I mentioned, this client that I was making these films for and have been making these films for is a mine. And that required me to go down underground and film. And it was a surreal experience. It's one of the most amazing things I have done. Um, going down there it was just, it was like an entirely different world. So I'll, I'll walk you through how I went through the process of getting down the ground and the experiences I went through. So it started off, we got all of our safety gear on and we went through these doors and there was three doors that were locking off air chambers because the, the entrance to the mine is pressurized, there's air pressure and that's to help keep dust within the mine. So as the doors opened, we got blasted by this huge uh, gust of wind, our ears popped and then the next door and the same thing happened and then the next door and it happened again and then all you could hear was this, this consistent drone. And that drone lasted from the moment we, we entered the, the mineshaft to drop down on the elevator um, until we came back up. And it was just this constant drone and it was a very bizarre sound. Um, 
It was just like the sound of machinery, but really dampened. Um, and that's something I've tried to get across when I've done the the sound effects on this film is is that constant uh, kind of enclosed droning sound. Um, it's hard to describe, but you'll have to watch the documentary when it comes out so you can get an idea of what I mean. Now, the actual mine itself is two kilometers below sea level. So it was about a seven or eight minute ride in the elevator going down. And this elevator was just like a metal cage. It was pitch black the whole time while we were going down. And as you get to about halfway down, again, there's this big rush of air as it comes past you and the, the whole of the cage was shaking as the air came past. And that was a, a very, very odd experience as well, being in this this metal box suspended two kilometers above uh, above the ground basically at that point um and yeah it was it was a bizarre experience but it was it was really really awesome and then as as we got down to the bottom and we came out of the elevator shaft you were suddenly hit with this this intense heat this very very intense heat and humidity and within seconds my body was just covered in sweat and it was it was quite disgusting and it was insane. Um, the, the, the best way I could describe it is like stepping off a, a plane, a nice air conditioned plane into a, a high temperature, humid, tropical environment. So while we're down there, um, the average temperature was around 45 degrees. But as we got up to 45 degrees Celsius, I should say, um, but as we got up to the the actual face where they were currently mining on, the temperatures were between 45 and 50 degrees Celsius. It was an insane, an intense amount of heat. Um, I've not experienced heat like that before. Um, never in like a natural setting. Um, in a sauna, probably. I'm not really sure what the temperatures of saunas are, but it was insanely warm. Uh, I, I was not expecting it to be that hot. Uh, the first day we went down, we had these overalls on and it was just disgustingly sweaty. Uh, so the second day when we went down, we ended up having uh, some high-vis shorts and a t-shirt, which was much nicer. Um, at least any draft that does come through the mine uh, could help us to, to cool down a little bit. And that was something there wasn't much of. There wasn't much airflow um, to the point where any dust particles that were floating in the air, you could see lingering right in front of your face. It was it was amazing, just dust floating around everywhere. Um, yeah, that was quite a quite an odd experience. Now, something you may be thinking is, oh, you, you've gone down into a mine. Um, it's going to be really tight, thin, narrow shafts that you have to crawl through on your hands and feet. And it wasn't like that at all. Uh, the, the mine itself, it had Land Rover Defenders, one of my favorite cars, driving around it, uh, full, massive-sized uh, Ford Transit vans. It was like a whole, whole network of of giant spaces that that the vehicles could drive down. Um, that was something like I, I wasn't expecting it to be small little little tight holes, but I wasn't expecting it to be as big as it was. the The whole area was like a giant city underground. It, it was very, very large. It was very, very amazing. Now, the furthest point out that we went to was about 12 kilometers out under the North Sea. So we went out, uh, the mine is situated on the coastline, and we went out and drove out. It probably took us about 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes to get out to the, the wall that we're at, and it was 12 kilometers under 
the sea. It went out for quite a long distance, and that is something I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting the the mines to have gone that far out. Um, it was it was very very weird driving for that long underground, knowing that two kilometers above you is just rock and ocean for two kilometers above you. That that's that's mad feeling. It is a very very mad feeling. Now lighting wise, there wasn't much at all. Most of the lights that I used within the film was practical and it was from the headlamps of all of the miners. Um, I wanted to go down there and not really add my own lighting into it because I, I wanted the shots to be very representative of how it feels down there. It's dark, it's warm, and it's, it's very, very claustrophobic. Um, so I, I wanted to use the practical lighting to kind of help emphasize how dark it was. Um, if the headlamp wasn't on, you wouldn't be able to see. You wouldn't be able to see at all in front of you. The headlamps really, really do provide a lot of light. And they were a lot brighter than I was expecting as well. Um, I went down expecting them to not be that bright, but they do give off quite a good amount of light. Um, so I was, I was quite happy with that. I did have a light panel with me just in case, um, but didn't end up having to use it. I just managed to use uh, the practical lighting from all of the headlamps. And that has brought some things across, like some weird color issues. Um, but I'm not going to really bother editing much of that out. I'm going to tone some of it down a bit. But I want to leave that there because that was actually how the lighting looked. There were some lights which had like a greeny to, uh, tinge to it. Some lights had the magenta tinge to it. Um, and I want it to look how it felt when I was down there. And that, that's something I'm wanting to bring across in this documentary quite a lot is, is trying to immerse people into what it is actually like to be two kilometers below ground in a dusty, warm, hot, humid mine. Um, so that that's something that I think going a practical route with the lighting is really going to help to pull across. Now, another issue that happened during the course of the shoot was, unfortunately, um, the trains in the UK aren't very, very good. Um, and every single shoot day, I was plagued by train delays, I was played by cancellations and strikes, um, so I never really ended up getting to the shoot at the time I planned for. But fortunately, um, something I do with a lot, of, uh, a lot of my shoots is I put some time either side for a contingency, um, so this is to make sure that if there is any issues where someone can't get there on time and there is a problem, um, it's, it's covered uh, in terms of time. Uh, at the start and at the end, there's kind of a buffer period. Uh, this is a really good thing to do if you're if you're filming documentaries or if you're filming anything really, is to have that buffer period where people should arrive for this time so we can get started early. But if there's any issues such as trains being delayed and cancelled, you can still get there on time and still have enough time to do the shoot. And even though I had these delays, we ended up finishing the shoots um, on most of the days uh, relatively early. Uh, so we were finishing about an hour, maybe it's an hour and a half on some days ahead of schedule, which was very, very nice. It's always a good feeling when you finish ahead of schedule, but it is good to plan and have these contingencies to make sure that you don't have any of these issues that could affect the rest of the shoot. Because it's easier to have a couple of extra hours of shooting than it is to have a couple of extra days shooting. So you need to make sure you set up these contingencies.
Now, the final day of shooting, uh, we, we had hoped and planned for in the script for it to be a relatively sunny day um, because we were planning to shoot outside for the whole of this day. And we found this really beautiful location um, on the North Yorkshire coastline called Moss Seat. And we wanted to film there. Unfortunately, the day was the complete opposite to what we planned, but I actually think it's turning out quite nicely with the edit now. Um, it's added this more moody, gritty tone to it. And I think it helps to show the passion that one of these characters has towards their hobby, uh, because one of the things we wanted to do with these films is to show some of their personal life so you can get an idea of who they are as a person. Um, so yeah, that, that actually ended up being quite good. Um, it was absolutely uh, tipping it down with rain. I was soaked, my gear was soaked. Um, unfortunately, my camera isn't weather sealed, so that was quite nerve wracking, but my camera's fine, which is nice to know. Um, yeah, it was it was a very, very wet and windy shoot, um, but we ended up doing, doing some nice shots, uh, managed to get a lot of shots with really heavy rain coming down on us, um, and I, I was really happy with that, how that ended out. Um, some of the things I was doing to make sure my gear stayed okay was I had a little towel with me to dry down my gear as often as possible. Um, I also had a plastic bag to put stuff into and I was making sure I wasn't changing my, my lenses and that kind of thing as often as I probably would have liked to, but that was just to make sure I wasn't getting any, any rain into the camera body and destroying its internals because that would have not been a good way to go. Yeah, now that I've finished the shoot and I've been doing the post-production, um, I'm really, really happy with how the shoot went. Uh, even though we ended up having to do an extra day and even though it's now two films instead of three films due to one of the people dropping out, um, I'm, I'm actually really, really pleased with how, how everything went and the end product that I'm starting to put together within post-production. Um, so I've got one of the films almost completed and I'm going to be talking about the post-production in a future episode of this podcast. Um, but yeah, I've got one of the films completed and I'm about to start on the, the second film and the footage has turned out beautifully. The story has turned out so well and I put that all down to really the pre-production that I talked to in the previous episode, in the pilot episode of this podcast. Um, yeah, doing that pre-production and planning the story out ahead of time and figuring out what shots I needed and exactly what I was trying to tell has made the whole process much easier. I knew what to go out and shoot for. I had a great list of questions to help tell that story. And now in the edit, I've been able to follow along the, the script and be like, okay, so I know what I need here and here and here and here. And I've been able to piece together the post-production in a much quicker, efficient way than I would have done if I didn't do all of the pre-production. So if you haven't checked out my previous episode of this podcast, uh, do go check that out. It's all about pre-producing for documentaries, um, specifically with client documentaries, and being able to tell a story that they would like and that works and gets across a message for their business. But yeah, it was, a, it was a very surreal experience shooting underground. I loved that so much. Um, I really, really enjoyed doing that. And I'm looking forward to, to working on some projects with them in the future and being able to go down there again. Before I wrap up this episode of the podcast, um, this is going to be the last one of this year. And we're going to be going on to a fortnightly schedule as of January. 
So I've got a lot of content planned. I'm going to be talking about the post-production. Um, I've got a few other um, like opinion topics planned. Um, I'm hopefully going to be going to some events and there's going to be some coverage from them. Um, and I've got some interviews lined up. I've got quite a few interviews lined up with other filmmakers that I'm really, really excited to get done and to share with you. There's a lot of stuff in the works for this podcast. I'm really, really excited to be doing it. And I've been wanting to do a podcast properly for years. And it's really, really good to finally have the time to be able to dedicate towards doing this. In the time since I did the previous podcast episode, I have passed 1,000 subscribers. Uh, I did a little vlog thanking everyone for that, but I wanted to thank you all again. Passing 1,000 subscribers was my goal for this year, and I am very, very excited that I have done this. Um, so thank you so much to everyone who is a subscriber. If you're not a subscriber, Make sure you go and subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast and enjoy any of my filmmaking tutorials. And I also want to say I've now got access to the community tab on YouTube. Um, so I'm going to be posting in there regularly uh, little updates and some behind the scenes stuff from my content. I'm also going to be posting some polls every now and then so you can help me to decide what content is going to be going up on the channel. Uh, whether you're wanting some tutorials on editing or tutorials on motion graphics or color grading or cinematography, whether you're wanting some more reviews, I'm going to be doing these polls regularly just so I can gauge what kind of stuff you are interested in. So if you do see them, please drop uh, your vote down on one of the subjects and it'd be great to get your feedback. That's all for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me on podcast at isaacjackson.com. You can also find me on most social networks as at Isaac Jackson. To learn more about filmmaking, visit my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Isaac Jackson. I post weekly tutorials and regular vlogs that take you behind the scenes of my video company, Volta Media. All right, thank you for joining me on my journey to learn filmmaking. And remember, films don't shoot themselves.